Welcome to WISE, a podcast for women introverts, sensitives, and empaths. I'm your host, Ashley Pardo, business coach, functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and former private chef. WISE is all about mindset, entrepreneurship and business, food and nutrition, spirituality, relationships, and ultimately living your purpose, all through the lens of the sensitive, introverted, and empathic woman. I know you might feel like the information out there isn't suited for you, but this is because we're powerful, strong, and deep, and we've got potential. Let's begin to let that out right now. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to WISE. This episode kicks off interviews again. I have been talking about bringing interviews back for a while. It's happening. This is the first one. And we have my good friend and colleague, Jessica Flanagan Brown of The Loving Diet. I thought it would be a great idea to bring Jessica on because she specializes in self-compassion around disordered eating, but she's also been doing really interesting research around intuitive eating and why it might be tough for some people. We talk about why. We talk about how we all have different needs when it comes to food and how intuitive eating is not necessarily the superior way of eating. And what it really means is that we need to honor what's best for us. And we also need to honor the way that our bodies work and really truly what we need. I thought it was also really interesting because she talks a lot about diet culture and has a different view on diet culture. And we have very, very similar ideas and views. And for those of you who potentially have struggled with intuitive eating or have had trouble finding a way to eat, I think that this episode is a great place to start. We also talk about the anti-diet movement and we both have similar views that, you know, I don't think it is very helpful for a lot of people in terms of feeling better. But again, the same lesson applies that I always talk about, which is we need to figure out what works for us and then do that thing. It is not so easy, but hopefully this episode gives you some insights and clues into steps that you can begin. And the feeling that I really wanted to get for this episode was relief. There's nothing wrong with you if you, you know, if it's hard for you to discern your body's cues, if you feel like you need to eat a certain way and, you know, you hear on Instagram or something that it's wrong, if you have a sensitive body, which you know that I talk about, this episode will make you feel seen and relieved and most importantly, equipped, confident, and empowered to take that next step. So Jessica Flanagan-Brown is a clinical nutritionist and author of The Loving Diet. Jessica has been practicing clinical nutrition for 25 years. In her clinical practice, she specializes in gut restoration, and in her coaching practice, she specializes in disordered eating, especially in midlife. She is finishing at Stanford University School of Medicine's CCARE Applied Compassion Training Program, where she will be a certified compassion teacher and educator. She helps others get in touch with the healing power of their heart with a practical approach. We also, in this episode, talk a little bit about menopause. So if you are premenopausal or going through menopause, you might get some insight from this episode too. You can also check out Jessica's six-week program, Self-Compassion for Disordered Eating, at 
in the show notes. And you can also find her on Instagram at The Loving Diet. And her website is thelovingdiet.com. So I'm going to wrap it up. Let's get to the episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. And let's go. Hi, Jessica. I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us today on this podcast. Hi, Ashley. I'm so happy to be here. And it's great to see you. It's so good to see you. Literally, when we got on, we were just smiling because it had been Jessica has been on the podcast before. Um, I will link her old episode in the show notes. And it's been about three years since we've talked like this. Uh, we are colleagues and we follow each other on Instagram and stuff. But you know, Jessica has been putting out a lot of really amazing content around many of these topics that I talk about and, you know, things that like you were saying before, when we first started talking that can be potentially triggering to people and that are also the truth, you know? So I think when it comes to food, when it comes to healing and with my particular population of people who are, you know, deep feeling women, women who perhaps don't do well or an approach of food of just like do this and not that is not enough. We need a little bit more uh, nuance and emotion and self-compassion. I wanted to bring you on to kind of give a little bit more um, depth to some of these surrounding topics and to give people, like we were saying before, just a little bit of relief. So what, and Jessica used to be uh, an autoimmune paleo nutritionist. She's made kind of a switch too, but I really want to just like tell the truth about some of these things. So what kind of created the shift for you to start talking about this and to talk about things that might be triggering to a lot of people that, like we said, are also the truth really coming from that, you know, other background and now moving into this work. There was a few appointments that I had that I wish I could go back and actually contact my clients to tell them that they changed my life, but it was appointments that I had with clients. The first one was a woman that made an appointment with me to talk about being on autoimmune paleo diet. And she started to cry and said, I have to tell you something, but it's okay with me if you want to end the call after I tell you. And I said, okay. And she said, I don't like bone broth and, and, and organ meat. And I think I'm not going to be allowed to do AIP. Oh, wow. And I said, well, I, you know, like the impact of that statement rippled through me of that she felt like there was a right way or a wrong way to do it. And that I heard was echoed many times from many clients on Facebook message boards and inside groups. And so what happened was people who started to go on AIP were developing disordered eating and in some cases eating disorders Mm -hmm. and a lot of orthorexia which is the pursuit of a healthy diet sort of gone wrong. Um, So it has a lot of emotional distress in the pursuit of categorizing food being healthy or not healthy. So my clients and my, I had to have an open heart and be willing to learn as I went, but my clients were really who started feeling pretty straight away. And I thought, wow, there's more here. Something's gone wrong. What's happening? And so 
I started to change my practice to meet the demand. And then I became the nutritionist people came to who were doing AIP in a, in secret because they wanted somebody who wasn't going to judge them. And yeah. so, and now I'm almost completely out of the autoimmune paleo, um, into the world of self-compassion and eating. Yes. What did you say? How did you respond when she told you that? Which I think that those are the two things that people think of when they think of healing and paleo in terms of like what we see on Instagram and stuff like, oh, you just need to add bone broth and organ meats. And like, that's going to be the answer, right? Like that's kind of like where we go. Uh, I think in terms of like extremes and intensity, uh, when it comes to that sort of healing protocol, I had to check myself, you know, I had to do a lot of reflecting to say, see what I was representing and that a lot of people were struggling. And so I, I, I mean, I remember tearing up on that call, like having to bite my lip to not cry of like, Oh my God, what are you doing, Jessica? What are you doing? you know, sort and that the part of it is, is that the diet is not wrong. It was people who were floundering with using diet to stay safe from a really scary thing that was happening. You know, when they think about what happens when you get diagnosed with cancer or you get diagnosed with an autoimmune condition or any chronic disease, you have a very natural, normal response, which is, oh my God, how do I get back to normal? How can I get rid of this as quick as possible? How can I, how can I change things to put myself into remission? Mm -hmm. You know, so people were really uh, approaching this in the right way. There was, they were just using diet to manage some strong, scary, out of control feelings that are natural and come along with hard things that happen to humans. Yeah. At this point now, because I have seen, it's been interesting because I found you through my own kind of uh, foray into autoimmune paleo, which I did for three months. It was very hard. Um, and through me being in whole 30 and like literally being a whole 30 recipe blogger and like really giving the whole 30 and paleo as protocols to clients and vilifying grains and vilifying fruit and sugar. And now I eat very differently and I have a very different approach. And I think sometimes we, we wouldn't know otherwise. Like, I think that when it comes to healing interventions, we, we often implement these intense protocols because we do think that they're healing and we do think that they have a lot of power and they do in some cases, but I don't think that we, at least thinking back to what I went through, I don't think that we really realize the impact that they can have. Um, so kind of knowing that where, what is your stance now on really extreme elimination diets and, you know, extreme ones, and then ones that even have any elimination at all? Well, I think there's no one right way to live your life and eat. There's only the way that works for you. Mm -hmm. And I am constantly in learning mode. So, um, I, I think the more important skill here is not necessarily what how you're, what diet you're on or what diet you're not on. It's where you judge yourself. And so for instance, I have a really good friend who is carnivore Mm -hmm. 
and it's very helpful for them and the chronic illness that they are dealing with. So for them, it feels like freedom. And I, it's not up for me to dispute that. Yes. I support them and love them. Uh, I have other people who just um, want to know if there's any other options. Yeah. And remember when AIP and Whole30 started, we didn't have the kind of testing that we have now that takes a lot of the guesswork out. So we've evolved. And so thank goodness there's more options for people. The other piece too is, is that sometimes uh, intuitive eating or like the anti-diet approach also produces results that people aren't happy with. Exactly. Gosh, that, that sentence right there, it produces results that people aren't happy with is that's the summary, right? Yes. I have, so I'll just use this client as an example of what we're talking about. Um, so I have, a, a young person that I'm working with, uh, who lives in Europe and they, they're the way that they, their natural weight point, their natural set weight point because of their genetics and all the other things is they are very unhappy with. Mm-hmm. So they would like to be naturally thin And their natural weight set point for doing intuitive eating is not thin. So they are really upset about it and they do crash diets and a lot of exercise in order to compensate for that. But what the bigger issue is, is that they feel like they were born wrong. They just can't get past that. And so if they were to keep dieting, that's fine. They can keep their body looking in a way that they're happy with. But the other pieces is that if they don't, and they went to their natural set point of just eating responsibly, intuitively, Mediterranean, however you want to call it, like just normal, Mm -hmm. they are, they, that would create a ton of sadness and grief that they are not willing to look at and be with and resolve. So they're stuck in this place of, well, if I went the intuitive eating route, I'm going to be so unhappy. And they, and intuitive eating tells me, I just need to be happy with what I look like naturally. Yeah. And really the big problem is, is that they haven't resolved the sadness and the grief about the way that their body was made. Yes, exactly. And I think that there's so much there in terms of like acceptance and peace. And also knowing that between these two big things, between I think every woman who's listening to this right now has probably been impacted by diet culture in some way. And which I'm so curious about your take on this. And we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. And then sort of the response to that like we were saying before, is really to go towards anti-diet, which means to me, the way that I understand it, like abandonment of, you know, of any sort of goal or um, just kind of like letting things happen as without any sort of like clear direction. Uh, And I think that many people think like, oh, those are my two choices. And this is what I also try to share and really letting people know that like there is a middle place there. There is a place that you can be balanced because I don't think that 
we need to be complacent with how our bodies look or feel most importantly, if we take the anti-diet route of like, okay, I'm just going to like eat intuitively. And even that phrase means so much. Like there isn't, we don't really know exactly what that means in terms of like, oh, I'm just going to eat intuitively. For many people that means overeating. Many people that means under eating. For many people that means eating, you know, at baseline or maintenance. Um, So going back to that, uh, I saw on your Instagram that you had written something that I thought was really interesting, which was diet culture isn't the enemy. And I thought that that was such an interesting take. Can you talk to us a little bit on what you mean by that and where that kind of came from? So diet culture isn't doing us any favors. Yes. <laughs> it's, yes. it's not in the enemy uh, where we get caught is where we judge ourselves, in contrast to what diet culture is telling us. So yes. if we judge ourselves and like, oh, I'm not beautiful because I'm not thin, you're going to stay caught. Yes. Diet culture is really just trying to make money off of this. So it's not the enemy in that where we want to look at how we're getting caught in the messaging. So what we're hearing now from the anti-diet culture movement is, is, you know, we just need to not have that messaging. That would be great. Wouldn't it? But you know what? Messaging is going to keep going. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so what happened with me is I decided to look at the gray area of all the people who are feeling shame and failure through doing intuitive eating and all the people who are feeling perhaps shame and failure from eating too restrictive for too long. So we look at what is the missing pieces and where is the opportunity? Where's the opportunity for us to fill in this very, very big gray area that we have emerging with uncovering all these really cool things that we are. We were uncovering the damage that diet culture is doing. We're uncovering that restrictive diets, not going to work in the long term. You know, we're uncovering that judging yourself is how we get stuck and that we have the power to change what we judge about ourselves. And so I love this emerging field. Essentially it's, and, and it will be an emerging field because all the big universities are now studying compassion. Cause I feel mm. like com- compassion and introceptive awareness are the two emerging fields, which if people who are listening, haven't heard about those two things yet, they will they yes. definitely will. And I think so much of this has like an undertone of us being victims like, oh, I have been a victim of diet culture. I have been a victim of anti-diet culture where like, like you said, these things are never going to go away. Like the diet industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Like it's always going to be there. So to me, knowing that, you know, I, again, when I was kind of in that place, because I've also been in that place where like, you know, I'm going to fight and I'm going to like, you know, fight against anti-diet and I'm going to be an advocate and all of these things. And I'm like, I think to me, the most resilient and strengthened place that I can be is creating an environment within myself where I can handle hearing it. And this is even like going into like trigger warnings and things like that, which like actually in research have shown to not be effective. (laughs) I think they actually 
stimulate our nervous system to like kind of be prepared for attack almost um, if you are in that place. But to me, there is so much like triggering that happens on Instagram of like, you can't say a number. You can't even say like, like, for example, your friend who is doing carnivore right now, I fully respect when anybody does what they need to do, as long as they are, even if it's restrictive, as long as it's what they need in that moment, you know? So my concern is trying to get people to be so resilient and to know that they have power to choose just because you hear these things and, you know, we're given these messages that are literally never going to go away. It doesn't mean that you should pad yourself from the world or pad yourself from certain information because it's always going to be there. I think that again, the better way is to create that environment where like you can hear these things and you can put it through a filter and say like, does this apply to me? Can I just ignore this? Or can I continue to do the work to discover, you know, what, what that means for me? you know? So, um, that's really where I want people to get to, which to me feels the most empowering and confident. Otherwise we'll be the, we'll go and be the, a victim of anti-diet culture as well. (laughs) Yeah. Not, and not only is it those things, it's actually emotionally regulating and it builds emotional resilience. Uh, and you know, so emotional and physical resilience, when we practice these things, which is the only way is the way you're going to do it and how to support yourself while you're doing it, how to clear up any judgments, if you form them and how to create a deeper relationship that you can't ever be off the path. There's no such thing as being off the path. And that is not what we hear in a a more severe way. When we look at how polarized the world is getting that, you know, this is like a radical message. You can't be off the path. Well, wait a minute. Like everybody's telling me I'm off the path. And so come, come over here where you'll be on the right path and then you'll feel safe and then you'll feel secure. And I think that I love why we're having this conversation is, is, Actually, there's a trust inside yourself from learning from how you're doing things and trusting your, the signals your body's getting, trusting what your heart is saying, trusting your intuition, all of those things. It's a little bit of a deeper, more profound process. Yes. And truly the only way, like to me, it is like I was saying in the beginning, there are people out there who you can just give them a food list and they're like, I'm good forever. And then we have those of us like me and like Jessica, I think that we wouldn't come to this work if we didn't do it ourselves. You know, we wouldn't know it so deeply if it wasn't our own path that brought us here. Um, I think that it's important for us to continue staying solid in that. And I know that what you said that there, you can't get off the path because it's your path and you're already on it. And there is no way for you to do anything wrong. Even, you know, even if you have a moment of like, Oh, I ate something that I wasn't supposed to and quote unquote, and, or I ate too much. People think that they're automatic failures. And obviously we know that that happens through conditioning, perfectionism, black and white thinking, and all of that. Um, but things like freedom and self-trust and compassion are these deeper topics that we need in order to get here. So when you talk about, and then this might be a big question that we can dive into a little bit more, 
when you talk about self-compassion, um, that's something, that's a phrase that a lot of people say, right? Like, oh, just be more compassionate with yourself. Um, just love yourself more. What, if you broke it down, what does self-compassion mean to you? And, and what are some of those like tangible things that we can begin to practice to become more compassionate with ourselves? Well, self-compassion means three things. So there's actually a, a official definition of self-compassion. Self-compassion is comprised of three things, mindfulness, self-kindness, and common humanity. And this is important when we look at how we can be kind to ourselves, because uh, mindfulness, for instance, is being present with what is happening to you, whether that's a beautiful, wonderful, exciting thing, or it's tragedy and sadness and something that you wish were different. So mindfulness is your ability to be present with whatever that might be so that you can work with it. The second thing is self-kindness, which is engaging your heart to, and being kind to yourself, even though you might've messed up, even though things are, uh, you wish things were different. The third thing is common humanity. And that just means we all are in bodies. So we all are going to suffer. It's part of the gig. Mm-hmm. And so those three things are what make up self-compassion. Now, the first thing that we can do to practice self-compassion is consider that our breath is really important because our mind, our minds hold thoughts and our bodies hold feelings. And we want to increase the connection between those two places. So we really want to connect the heart to the mind. And so the first thing that we can do is we can think about, and everybody who's listening can do this just in real time. You can think about your, wherever you are right now, imagine your favorite person, whoever it is that you, that you love, that is just your favorite person. And imagine if they were to walk up to you, if you are having a hard time, what would they say? What would they say? Like, I'm, I might say to somebody, I'm so sorry that this is happening. It's all going to be okay. You are such an amazing person and I love you so much. And I believe you can get through this. So self-compassion is doing that for ourselves. It is literally embodying kindness in the face of struggle, difficulty. uh, And it is, uh, it, And it is so effective that it's been studied. There's been over 30,000 studies in self-compassion. It has been shown that people who are professional athletes that practice self-compassion perform better in competitions, which is interesting because a lot of people think self-compassion is a weakness. Exactly. Taking the easy way out. And what we know is, is that people who practice self-compassion have better immune systems. They have better emotional resilience. They perform better in competitions, their neurochemicals become more balanced and they have a better body image. Now that's just stuff that has been shown already in science. It's incredible. Very cool. It's incredible. And I think that, you know, a lot of like when people come to us, let's say they're usually at a place where they're in pain, right? Like 
they're not feeling well, they want a change. That's most people, I would say, unless they want to go into maintenance mode or something. But so most people, this is news to them, right? That this isn't even an option. Like you said, it feels like giving up. It feels like complacency. It feels like weakness. And I think that many people are so far removed from being in that place where literally they might be in a place of hate or self-loathing that going from that place to I'm going to be kind to myself feels so far away. And this is why it's so important what you just said in terms of embodying someone else. And I think that that's such an important tool because if we just rely in my own work, I call this like the voice, like that's the mean one. So I, I, I urge people to give it a name, give it a name, recognize that voice. And that voice might always be there. That's the thing too, that like this negative voice, negative bias, jump to conclusions. That is my sort of patterning here, jumps to conclusions, jumps to negativity. That likely isn't going to go away. And I think that we expect sometimes if we go on this journey, we think like, oh, the point is to like eliminate that voice, you know, and I'm, I'm not good yet. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived because I still hear that voice. And I really try to be open about the fact that like it, it might, it might always be there, but it's not going to be as loud. And in time through daily action steps, through practicing this work, you begin to amplify the voice of your own internal caregiver and that is compassionate and kind and doesn't see any of like your food or body actions as a wrong thing. You know, to me, they're insightful. There's information there in quote unquote failure or doing something bad. So I think that again, in knowing that many of us might be so far removed there, the helpful tool is being like, okay, can I picture my, my grandma? Can I picture my you know, my partner, can I picture my best friend as the person who is going to give me that positivity and that regard and that compassion, because I don't have it right now. But the thing is through time, it becomes you and it becomes your voice. Uh, And I think that people need to kind of realize sometimes that it takes time. It takes so much time (laughs) to get to that place in your experience. What is Um, and we, you and I were talking before in terms of like how this process takes time, what is your kind of experience with the timeline of these things and how, I don't even want to say how long it takes, but sort of the importance of consistent practice with this in order to get there in time. Practice is important because self-compassion is like flexing a muscle. So self-compassion runs from a well that doesn't ever run dry. So that's why I love this, me- uh, this method and this tool, these tools for people who are really tired, it doesn't ever run out. And it is uh, one of those things where uh, the voice is always going to be there, but uh, I'm no longer going to let it dictate my goodness. Yes. So being becoming neutral about the voice, even being there would it be something that we would look for? So I always tell my students, we want to look for neutrality more than the elimination. Am I going to be okay? Even though this is here. Yes, exactly. So Um, I really want to look at that. And I'm finding that, uh, that's really important when we're eating also, because that changes 
the chemicals inside of our body, the neurochemicals inside of our body that are so disrupted when, for instance, we've experienced trauma early on, early on in our life, because those are the things, those kinds of hard experiences can shut off the signaling of being able to determine if you are hungry or full. And this is the things that nobody is talking about. Yes. And self-compassion is so powerful that it can help rewire those signals so that you can sink down into your body and you can sense correctly what your body is saying through kindness, not through fixing and not through elimination, elimination of anything really. Yeah. So we don't, right. We don't. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it is, I think that for so many of us, like we, we think that we should be different. We think that like we should you know, be better, that there's something wrong, that there is, that we come from that place of lack. And again, these are like, we're getting right into the meat of so many of the sources yeah. of these issues with food. So really going along with what you were just saying and really what I wanted to talk to, the main thing that I wanted to talk to you about today, which is in this nutrition world, um, because I talk about and do intentional weight loss, which <laughs> is, you know, um, not everybody loves and people tell me all the time, oh, you're a part of diet culture. You are, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. It, it, diets don't work. I do it obviously responsibly and all of these things. But even in that many people come to me because intuitive eating quote unquote failed them, yes. or they felt shame that they weren't good at listening to their bodies. When if you're on Instagram, so much of the things that we're talking about today have come from the way that our culture is now, like with Instagram kind of being the basis of everything and having so many conflicting voices and all of that. So in that world, which says, you know, delete anything that isn't intuitive eating, don't try to control anything, don't try to, um, you know, don't try to be restrictive. Don't try to pay attention to your portions. Just eat intuitively for the people that feel that they cannot do that. What are some reasons why? And what are some things that we can do in order to develop that skill a little bit more? Kind of a big question, but uh, I'd love to dive in. Well, let's talk a little bit about well, why it doesn't work. And so I, from, from everything I have been looking at with the research that's been published, I am surprised that there's so many people who can intuitively eat. I would say that there, I mean, if I had to estimate, I would say less than 20% of, of the population is going to be able to quote unquote, successfully intuitively eat. Wow. And this is really important. And here's why. When we look at who intuitive eating is for, who, who has success on intuitive eating, people who have not had a traumatized childhood, people who have high introceptive awareness scores, people who have very few ACE sc scores or their ACE scores very low, the adverse childhood experience score. So let's, we can really just sort of carve out who statistically we would expect to excel on this. And I want everybody to excel Yes, uh, on intuitive eating, by the way, because it's a really cool concept. We are really, 
we're not trying to pick on intuitive eating by this conversation. We're trying to look at how we can develop resources for people who want to just find a level of comfort to do it life in a way that works for them. Yes. <laughs> so the other thing that we know is, is that, okay, so let's say if we look at what the definition of intuitive eating is, it's to stop looking at foods as good or bad, and instead listen to your body and eat what feels right. So intuitive eating is really built on this concept of listening for your body signals. Now that's a great message. And a lot of our culture cannot do that. And why, why can't they? Well, because they have had things happen to them. That's interfered with the signaling of being able to listen to their body signals. And this has been shown over and over again in science. Now, what allows us to listen to body signals? This is a new area of research that has just been developed in the last decade. It's been studied for two decades, but most people have never even heard of it. And the way that you listen to your body's signals is called introceptive awareness. So it's a really big word, but it's a very simple concept. And introceptive awareness is the way that you sense and process signals in your body. So are you full? Yes, I feel full. Are you hungry? Yes, I'm so hungry. That is the messaging that your brain is trying to interpret from your body. So we feel better emotionally when we can interpret all of these signals. But here's what we know. Every, uh, this is what science has told us. At least people with eating disorders have a very low introceptive awareness. People with disordered eating, very low introceptive awareness. How do we know who has disordered eating? Well, if we think about those statistics, three out of four people have a form of disordered eating. I mean, that's a pretty big, uh, look at the population that might struggle to properly interpret those signals. So we need this proper signaling and sensing for an accurate body image. We also need it for emotional regulation. This is what is missing out of intuitive eating. And the study that I just did showed that self-compassion increases introceptive awareness. Mm. And so mind body approaches tend to be things that help improve introceptive awareness in individuals, which is pretty easy to develop a practice so that you can more accurately trust the signals that your body is giving you so that you can go on and believe that when your body says it's hungry, it is, and it's not something else that is telling you it's hungry. Yes. Like emotions. It, exactly. And do you think that with enough practice that there, that anybody could develop this, this skill? Yes. So, uh, self-compassion is one, believe it or not, there's not been a study that has shown that self-compassion can increase introceptive awareness in eating disorders and disordered eating. I do believe I'm the first person to do the study and there was a 30% increase in my study group for introceptive awareness at the end. And this wow. is by letting go letting go of any idea that there's a right or a wrong way to eat. Yes, exactly. And trusting that you can sort through what's happened in your life and why you developed it the way that you did and what it needs. 
Yes. There was a 60% increase in body trust in my group, which is a pretty significant jump. And that was just in six weeks by everybody courageously joining my group to practice meditations and to do journal exercises. But there's other things that increase introceptive awareness, Tai Chi, yoga, Mm -hmm. somatic experiencing, uh, uh, tapping, EMDR. Mm -hmm. Those are things that Pilates, those are things that really any, what we would consider mind body skills. Some work better than others, but those are things that will increase the ability for you to properly sense and process the signals in your body so that you can go on and be able to make better decisions about what works for you. Exactly. And I think it's important what you said that it's not only like the physical signals of like, am I hungry? Am I full? What type of food do I want? What would be best for me? All of that, which again, just talking to so many of these women that try to figure that out that feel just aimless and like, there's no hope for them. Like, I'm never going to be able to figure this out. This just isn't meant for me. So there's that component. And then there's also like the emotional component because so many people eat for emotional reasons. So there's also like, you know, the self-regulation that needs to occur, which compassion is in there too, but identifying what am I feeling Like, what is the emotion that I'm feeling? And then there's also the blend of the two things of like, I want to eat because I'm feeling this way, you know? So there's so many different skills here that come into play for eating. And I think it's so important what you said in terms of like, I don't think that people are, I think people are uncomfortable with this type of work because I don't think anyone's ever given them this much power. I agree. And we're seeing right now, you know, there's lots of different trends, micro trends that we can see. One of the micro trends that I'm seeing right now in the intuitive eating movement is uh, you should be eating more. If you're hungry, that's a sign that you need to eat more. And I was like, wow, that's a really big assumption that is absolutely not true for everybody. Yes. And I think just being, I'm, you know, adjacent to the fitness space, you know, and people that have very high metabolisms and things like that, and people promoting kind of eating close to 3000 calories as like, which for me would not work even 2,800. Like for me personally, my body, I'm short, like I, my frame is not huge. So that would be way too much. And then we have another layer of shame of like, what's wrong with me for not being able to eat that much. And there's even like the metabol, the metabolite diet, or have you heard of that? Or like the metabolic something, it's like, just eat like what you're saying, kind of eat to your heart's content, which again, we don't really know what that means. Um, We don't know where that threshold is. So I see that a lot as well, that like my body can't handle this much food, which like, obviously we have varying degrees to which our bodies can handle a a certain intake. Um, but people are again, feeling shame for like, Oh, but I can't eat that much. And because they see so many people eating close to 3000, 2,800, 2,400 calories, even, um, that that's not for everybody either. Well, even if we take the word diet out of our culture, we're still going to be left with all the things that we believe about ourselves. That's driving how we eat, yes. uh, that we haven't cleared up. 
Yes. So I love that we're p- paying attention to it, but it's not really getting to the root of the issue. Exactly. And, and I love how you just said that with, you know, there's, we're, we're, we're getting a ton of messages about how it needs to be done. And, uh, there's more room here Yes, to take a little bit of a deeper dive. Yes. Which to me is the only sustainable way, this gray area. And which again, like we said in the beginning is a little bit harder. It takes more time, but to me, it's the only way because you, if you're out there and you're feeling like none of this has worked for me, I feel very lost with food. Nothing that any sort of recommendations of anybody gives me seems to work for me. It's because you might not have like dove into all of this stuff yet of, of going on that journey of realizing what this means for you. And like you said, even more importantly, dealing with those underlying issues. Right. Which we're not being trained to do. Yes. Is not part of the training as we become dietitians and nutritionists and often even therapists. And so this is where this kindness piece can be really, really helpful. And if you look at the wording, even in intuitive eating, make peace with food, call a truce, you know, give yourself unconditional permission. Well, uh, if you believe that you were made wrong, if you believe that you're unlovable, if you believe that the only way you're going to heal is to try hard, that is not unconditional permission towards yourself. And those are all requirements in order to be able to successfully do that kind of eating, respect your fullness. Well, if you, yes, that is great. But if you don't respect the part inside of yourself that is trying to reach a goal, because it's trying to reach a goal out of a deficit that you believe is true about yourself, then how can you trust that sense of fullness from food? Does that make sense? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that in all my programs, these are things that like we address on day one because I'm like, you've come to a nutrition program, but <laughs> surprise, we're going to be talking about emotions and and people know that like coming in and seeing my work and stuff. But I think a big part of this too, and something that I remember reading in your book, um, the loving, it was called the loving diet, right? The yes. book. Yep. Okay. Um, that if people were overeating and binging, it was not the, the overeating and the binging was not the problem. It was your relationship to the overeating and the binging. Like everything is about your relationship to the thing when you think it's really the thing, right? So it's not really a weight problem. It's your relationship with your weight. It's not an overeating problem. It's your relationship to that thing. So can you speak a little bit more about that and maybe how people can begin to look deeper into these things to uncover these truths that they need to learn in order to begin this process? Well, you can ask yourself, why am I eating the way that I'm eating? And that was the question that I started asking people and myself when I was working in the AIP world. So what's your relationship to autoimmune paleo? I would ask a client and they would say, my relationship is, is I'm going to hold on at any cost because it's going to save me. Yeah. Because if I don't, 
then I'm just a failure and I'm, I don't have what it takes to be there for my health. Oh my gosh, what pressure. Yes. So that's that relationship, right? So what I'm finding is, is that it's just very normal for us humans to cross over practicality and move into a philosophical experience that we're having with food that is really shaping the relationship that we have with ourself in regards to our strengths and our goodness. Like I'm not, I'm not strong enough if I can't not care about food enough to just lay down the fork. Yes, exactly. And it's so hard. And I think one of the main differences is that so many of these practices come from a place of force. Like I have to force myself. I have to willpower my way. I have to white knuckle myself into doing these things that honestly people don't want to do. You know, it, they're not natural. It's not, you know, they're not working with their bodies, but that's all we know. Right. So I try to coach people to come from a place of power of like you have, and again, when it comes to, and we can dive into this a little bit now, beliefs don't change overnight, you know? So it's not like you're going to go from like, I don't love my body. Like kind of like we were saying before, I don't love my body and I can't trust myself to eat to in one second after reading a book or an Instagram to, I love myself and now I trust myself. Right. The, and I think that logically we want things to happen that way. And we want things to happen very quickly. It's just human nature but we will not see a changed belief until we have evidence in reality. Well, that... it has, I'd say it, it, I would say it has to be as good or better than. So if whatever yes. belief that you have that isn't true, but you needed it to be true so you could survive or uh, make it, uh, if you're going to replace that belief, it has to be as good or better than, or else uh, it's going to be very difficult for our basic self to let that go. So one is, is that think, consider that touching our own deep care to a untrue belief by talking to it and say, wow, I'm so sorry that you needed to decide that. And I really understand why there was no one there. No adults were there to help you. You, that was, you felt like that was your only choice. And I, I see that I recognize that now that's a really caring way to really look at that or state state it. So it has to be as good or better than, and anything that we do that comes out of care for ourselves, which would be also considered compassion mm-hmm. is stronger. It has a stronger energetic resonance than anything that we're holding on to that isn't true that we decided and we needed to decide or believe it because we thought there was no other options. So it usually does take some practice and some work, but I do see people have beliefs that they can change instantaneously when they use their heart space to do it. Yes. And, you know, we've been talking about all different types of eating, like, you know, eating at maintenance and, you know, overeating I work with a lot of people who struggle with overeating, binge eating, and I can relate to this myself as somebody who used to do that. When somebody is in 
the throes of overeating, like let's say they're like in the pantry in the midst of it and they feel like they are so separated from themselves. It's almost like they're in a trance, right? What can they do in again? And that means that the nervous system is like in that heightened stimulated state. What can they do in that moment in order to kind of stop the behavior or pause or kind of get back into awareness? Well, one is to consider what would it be like if they didn't judge their overeater? Yes. So one is, is what would it be like in my world right now? If I paused on the judgments towards my inner eater, that my inner eater might have needs it's trying to fulfill. Now it's best to do this when we're not feeling very engaged and dysregulated in that behavior. So more of a quiet moment where you can reflect back and start a conversation with your overeater. But again, it goes back to those questions that we were saying before, which is uh, what happened to you? What do you believe? Why do you need to believe it? And what can I do? Like, how can I be with you right now? And see what happens. Yes. And it's, again, this, that type of behavior is not something that usually goes away overnight. I think that we need continued evidence that like, oh, I can actually reflect afterwards, or I can, there is space here for me to question this behavior. And I think it's also important to note that everything that we do as humans is always coming back to safety and what feels safe for us and what feels like can be soothing, which sometimes might be a behavior that doesn't serve us and a behavior that isn't actually good for our well-being and moving out of that place into you know a behavior that is for your own self-regard is a process that can also be tough but it it i would believe that the way we get through that is by doing what you just said which is you know pausing asking questions and continuing to learn to take new action steps and create new kind of ways of being. Yes, because a lot of the beliefs that drive our behaviors are unconscious. Yes. So oftentimes we're talking about unconscious beliefs. And from my perspective, there isn't any place that loving can't touch. It's so powerful. It's has an electromagnetic resonance, our heart that's 10 times stronger than our brains. And so just like you, everybody who's listening were to think about somebody that they really love, maybe their first crush, or maybe a teacher that they had when they were younger or a grandparent that's passed away, that love is still present. We still think about that person and think about our first pet Mm -hmm. and we can call that love up in a instant. It's faster than the speed of light. Those are the things that can transform our unconscious beliefs. And self-compassion is a process of remembering our wholeness, not fixing. Mm. So when we do all of these things, it's great for when we feel exhausted, because not only does it help and draws from a well that doesn't run out, that it's so powerful. It can transform what it is that we believe about ourselves that isn't true. That is forming our unconscious beliefs and driving our behavior. And eating is so often 
related to what's going on in the unconscious. Yes, exactly. And so much of it has to do with, I think, the way that we were parented and just talking about like adverse childhood experiences and the fact that many of us, I know that my eating and my eat, my disordered eating and all of that was born from trauma with food and my body and all of these things and really not knowing how to take care of myself without food, without using food. And the thing is that if you take care of yourself in that way, I'm using that in quotes, like take care of yourself with food, because obviously there is a level to which we eat that is nourishing. And then, but if you're using food to soothe, then it's likely that you are not going to feel great after you eat it. Right. So it isn't actually, it might soothe us in the moment, but it doesn't actually make us feel awesome. And I would love for you to talk about you know, and it might be the same thing, reparenting and really being able to get what we didn't, what we didn't get back then that we still need now. Well, we can talk about the neurochemistry, which is dopamine. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes, especially when we're doing binge eating, it's a, we're getting a great dopamine hit and that dopamine is a neurochemical that makes us feel really good. So there is a purpose there for that emotional eating. Well, self-compassion also increases dopamine and it's been shown in science to do that. So we can be thankful that we figured out a way to take care of ourselves yes. <laughs> and not, and not judge it. And then realize like, oh, there's another piece inside of me that has the ability to do that. Also, I'm going to try that out and I'm going to see how that goes. And this is one of those things self-compassion is one of the things that can really help with that. Yeah. And if somebody right now is feeling like another thing that I hear a lot is lack of self-trust and feeling like not only can I not soothe myself, you know, in the way that would be best for me, but I also don't trust myself at all. And I yeah. believe that that's because, okay, that might feel true right now, but it's only because that's all the evidence that we have it doesn't mean that it can't be changed. So what are some ways that people can increase their own self-trust, which also has to do with like what we were talking about before about intuitive eating and sensing the body and sensing the emotional mind? Well, we can work with that part of ourself that doesn't trust. And so we first, we can get really curious about it. If it feels like there's not very much information about it. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I don't trust I wonder what would happen if I just kept an open mind about it and what would come forward? Cause see, if we are really bullying against the part of ourselves that isn't trusting, it's not going to build more trust. Yes. But oftentimes when we lack trust, we have a good reason why we don't lack trust. Yes. Maybe someone wasn't there for us who should have been, but see the piece about self-compassion is, is that it is a really good self-parenting tool. And it's a really good inner child and inner parenting tool that works and it can help us re-signal to the brain that those feelings of safety. And when we do that, then that promotes a more of a normal neurochemical response and we're producing more dopamine in response to it. So if then we feel our emotional eater come and we want to binge, then we can really 
take good care of it, not judge it while it's there. And, and with these high expectations, like I need to just stop binge eating. Yes. I don't know that that works yes. to just stop. Exactly. And this like really touches upon the fact that we all have so many parts to us, right? Like so many parts, so many parts to us. And I think that with what we see out there, like a lot of people make it seem very easy. Like, oh, you're just going to read this book and you'll automatically like feel normal or be fixed or whatever it is. And I don't think enough people talk about the fact that the parts of us that drive us to eat or that we don't feel whole in might always be there, you know? So the, the, this was my own journey into self-compassion really like coming from a place of hate and having no self-compassion or self-regard to really treating myself well and having deep compassion for myself uh, in the last like 10 years or so. But I still have that voice, you know, that is not the nicest and, you know, reacts in different ways, is negative and things got a lot better once I changed my relationship to it, like you're saying, right? Like it wasn't eradicating it or eliminating it. It was changing my relationship to it and accepting that it might always be there, you know, which is kind of how we, uh, I think, move through all of these things. Yes. And there's a leaf, leaf blower outside. So I don't know yes. if you can hear that. <laughs> it's all so- good. I mean, this is just the, po- this is just like nature of podcast of real life on here today. I mean, Tuesday is the day that like my, that the trash comes here. So it's, there's stuff in the background. It's, it's totally normal. Um, but do you still experience that part of yourself too? That part of yourself that like is not, um, you know, um, super aware and (laughs) I think perfection, right? I know that we all do experience it, but I don't think enough people kind of talk about how that part of themselves might still be with them. It's a path of the yogis to be able to not judge the parts inside of you that you think are less than. It is important work. And that's where we start throwing out this idea that there's perfection. So there's no perfection in our body. There's only perfection in our loving. And so when we consider that I can be with all these parts of myself, even the ones that bug me, that annoy me, that I wish weren't there can I be with them and allow them to have room? And the more that we can do that, I find that the less time they need at the microphone, taking up a a lot of our attention because we're caring and we're caretaking them. And that also really helps balance our neurobiology. Yes, totally. And I think that again, the more people talk about this and the more people um, are open about the fact that you don't need to be that perfection actually is not unattainable. We know that logically, but I think we still have that expectation of ourselves sometimes. Like I've done so much work. I shouldn't have these feelings. I, you know, this part of myself is, is always going to be present. But then again, we have a choice into what we do and how we kind of respond, which I think is the whole nature of this conversation, knowing that there is choice and there is, um, other possibilities. And there is hope for all of these things. Now, I love that. And I believe all of that. And then there's this other piece too, which just to 
really validate anybody who might be feeling this, which is sometimes life feels so hard. You feel, it feels beyond hopeless. It feels like, no, you know, like I don't even, you, you guys are saying this, but everything inside me feels like it's dying. There's no, there's no light left. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's, I just want to really validate that people are, might be feeling that and validate that even if that feels to be the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And so one of the pieces when I was going through the most difficult time in my entire life, it was really about not battling against the part of me that was feeling so sad and hopeless. And just, I I stopped fighting against it. And uh, you can use breathing to help facilitate this as well. Um, And that really was really helpful where I just laid down on my bed and I said, okay, I'm going to stop fighting against this hopelessness and this grief that I have. Maybe it has something here for my benefit. And so anybody who is feeling really sad and really hopeless, there's sometimes we have to, as my teacher says, learn to whistle in the dark, whistle in the dark. And so oftentimes food is a way to whistle in the dark. Yes, exactly. And absolutely. I think many people, especially like where we are right now in the world, in terms of like what we've been through in the past three years and all the things that have happened that it might be common for somebody to be feeling that way. And it's important to note that it's, I think we've all been there at some point. Um, And the fact that when I think of how I was back then and how I felt, it wasn't the resistance to the feeling was worse than the feeling itself. Yes. You know, so allowing myself to say, I am hopeless. I am sad. I feel like things are never going to get better. Like actually speaking those things out loud or I am depressed or whatever it is, speaking those things out loud and accepting that that's how we're feeling is it's not easy, but it's easier than fighting and trying to fix, which are all going to be temporary band-aids. Yeah. That's that mindfulness piece through self-compassion. Yes. Yeah. So if people are feeling right now, like, you know, they've listened to this conversation and they have felt like, okay, diets don't work for me. Anti-diet doesn't work for me. I want to go on this middle path then. What are some steps that they can take today to start believing that that is a possible thing for them to do, which I think is the goal that most people want, right? Like I just want my thing. I want the thing that's going to work for me. So many people, it might be decades that they've oscillated between, you know, another way to say this is like restriction and binging and, you know, or diet culture and anti-diet culture. If they want the middle path, which again is, takes a little more work on the onset. What are some steps that they can begin to take today? They can look at practicing the very, a very simple self-compassion exercise and notice what they feel in their body after they do. And that's really important. We want to practice it and then notice what you're feeling. 
So you can do that practice. We were talking about what would it feel like if somebody who you really deeply care about came into the room, held your hand and said, it's going to be okay. Everybody messes up or, you know, it's hard right now, but it's not going to be hard forever. I love you no matter what, how do they feel in their body when they do that imagination, that exercise? The other thing that they can do is they can start using their breath to listen to their body differently. One of the first introceptive exercises that people can do is one, they can take the quiz. It's called the multidimensional introceptive assessment, and they can Google that and it's free. You, so you can see how much of, of sense in my body do I have? But the other thing they can do if they want to is just after they listen to this uh, podcast, lay down in their bed or on the couch and just notice how well or how easy it is for you to follow your heartbeat. And if it's hard for you to follow your heartbeat, then that might be good information that there's some things that you can do to increase your introceptive awareness. And then the third thing you could do is perhaps even read the book on self-compassion. Chris, Dr. Kristen Neff wrote NEFF. She wrote the book on self-compassion and it's a great book. And just, there's also the center for self-compassion or center for compassionate studies, I believe, um, that has a lot of free information on it as well. Awesome. Uh, those are some really tangible things that, that people can start doing. Um, when it comes to the actual food, what is your stance now on, in terms of like how you eat, obviously that's going to be different for someone else, but what is your kind of thought process now around actual nutrition and, and food selection, uh, in terms of like the practicality of how people, um, should begin to practice this? Well, I think working with your doctor, and working with a nutritionist or a dietitian is really helpful. And one is to just consider like, what are the goals that you have and why do you have those goals? Yes. So if you, so if you're trying to reach a goal from a lack place rather than an abundance place, it's going to really form the results and how the journey is going to be. And you can work with somebody who can help you understand, am I trying to reach my goals from lack or am I trying to reach it from abundance? Yes. Um, as far as the food piece goes, I have let go of a lot. Me, I still don't eat gluten. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do eat dairy now. Um, but I know I don't feel great when I eat dairy. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on not judging myself. Yeah. Um, but I'm also going through menopause and menopause has really, really, um, changes the biochemistry in people's bodies and brains. Um, so it's everything that I was doing really has kind of changed and shifted, um, in response to what's happening inside of my body. And I have to say, Ashley, honestly, it's been incredibly humbling mm. and everything that I thought that I knew I don't. And so yet yeah, I'm going through yet another learning experience and learning curve to navigate that because menopause turns out is one of the risk factors for eating disorder, a new onset and a relapse. 
Oh, so. wow. I didn't yes. know that. Yes. Is it, is it usually in response to your changing body and wanting to restrict? It's uh, based on neurochemistry. So insulin, cortisol, uh, serotonin, dopamine all change. So does um, the hormones leptin all shift when you go into menopause. So just like when you go through adolescence, adolescence is a risk factor for disordered eating and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. It turns out that menopause is too, because it's a lot of the same uh, neurochemical changes that you're going through again, that nobody's talking about. I was just about to say, this, this is the first time I hear of this. Um, yes. because I mean, I have menopausal clients, um, and most of them, like you're saying, like, it's like a new, obviously it's a completely new way of being. I can't even speak to it. I haven't gone through it yet, but you know, something that, um, is that changes your worldview. And I think what Jessica is, you know, what I would guess that you would say is that you would approach it in the same way, being curious, approaching it with self-compassion, um, practicing these things, but why is nobody talking about this in terms of it being also, because I think for so many women, it causes a change in body or a change in eating, you know, like you can't eat as much or you can't, um, you know, like your body might look different, um, as a result, which I, which is again, kind of why I said restriction, because I'm like, are people restricting further as a result of their changing body because of menopause? Yes. It's another loss of control along with a lot of big changes that just naturally happen at this time in people's lives. Mm -hmm. So, um, also the ovaries stop making estrogen. And when we have less estrogen, that has a cascade effect on the hormones that we're producing and nobody is talking about this. And, um, it is going to be the next study that I do of self-compassion, working for menopausal disordered eating, which I'm finding, uh, just because I'm starting to speak about this. Wow. Is there a huge response to people wanting to know more about this? Yes. Yeah. And definitely, you know, we'll share all of Jessica's information in, in the show notes. And when we share the podcast, so you can, you know, follow her on Instagram so you can see all of those things. Um, but I really want to close just kind of like I said, giving people validation and giving yeah. people relief for what I hope becomes a bigger conversation and that more people talk about. I also think, and this is something that I haven't stated on Instagram, but I think that many of the people who are touting intuitive eating and what I see, and again, this isn't like me nitpicking or even speaking poorly. It's just that there is kind of a, an elitism that happens um, or like a superiority that happens. Like if you are not intuitive eating, there is something wrong um, if you if you can't do this. And I think that many of the people out there op operate from a place of thin privilege or a place of um, just having a higher metabolism that genetically you can handle more food. When people like me and people who have what I say is a sensitive body that's genetically predisposed to gain and hold on to fat. That's just the way my body is. So I literally cannot intuitively eat in the way that it's promoted out there. Me too. Um, yeah. So I, I think that many people need to hear 
these things and know that one, there's nothing wrong if you can't do that. And two, that there's things that can be done in order to refine that skill. And even then you might still need to pay attention to a high degree. Yes. And that the looking at how you're judging yourself. So if you decide you want to lose weight because you want to fit into your clothes and that's how you feel the best and you're doing it from an abundance place rather than a lack place, it's going to, you're going to have a different experience. And so this is what we're talking about. There's no way to be off the path. Yes. No way to be off the path. And also that your desires that you have for your body are never bad. You know, I, I feel like also in the anti-diet space, I speak to women all the time who, because of intuitive eating or because of binging as a result of dieting have gained a lot of weight, um, that they feel like they are bad or wrong for even wanting, even wanting to embark on the path of weight loss. Uh, just in anticipation of us having this conversation, I visited a few intuitive eating blogs Mm -hmm. and one of them was about, you know, um, anything, any change, the, the article basically said any change to eating physical activity or general lifestyle with the intention of weight loss is a diet. Exactly. Um, and so then like that's, and so you, you can't be intuitive eating dietitian if you peddle that belief and someone in the comments said just like it made me tear up actually i uh, the the person who commented said i am overweight i'm obese and i really do not like how i feel and you are excluding me Ooh. you are excluding me from your movement by telling me that i can't diet even though it's my heart's desire because I want to feel better inside of my body. We can just leave it right there because I feel like that's a mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) Like, amen, you know? Yes, exactly. And that's why, you know, I am here. That's why you're here sharing the amazing work that you're sharing. And I am also, I think, trying to be a safe place that, people or a compassionate place that people feel like they can come to if they're feeling that way. And you too, right? If they're feeling like they want to change their body, nobody knows how you feel in your body except for you, right? Nobody knows what it's like to walk around or to move or to be in a place that does not feel like it's authentic to you that most importantly, we look just bigger here. Yeah, You're not living the life that you want to. And you don't have to stay there if you don't want to. But again, we're talking about just a different approach, a place of abundance and love and compassion. Yeah. My friends always says to me, we paid full price for this ticket to be here. Yes. So you, you paid a full fare ticket. You don't have to live a discounted life. Yes. So you get to do it how you want to do it and reap all the rewards of building wisdom. Uh, and along the way, and there is going to be places where you stumble and you second guess yourself. And maybe you think you're, you have failed. And this is where self-compassion can build resilience inside of you so that you don't make a judgment against yourself, uh, in the long term. you clear it up right as you go along. I love it. And thankfully, I hope more people continue to talk about this. I hope people share this podcast. Was there anything else that I didn't ask that you wanted to say or talk about. 
my heart's desire is to take this in that everything you need is built inside of you right now. You have a complete tool set. It has not been damaged no matter what your experiences have been growing up and any hard things that have happened to you. Your heart is totally available as a way to heal and help you. And you don't need to do anything to make it whole. It already is. Beautiful. I mean, I've been even getting chills listening to that. Uh, so thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us, to talk with us, to share your beautiful wisdom. And, you know, I really, really appreciate your work and everything that you share. Um, please tell us how we can find you and how we can work with you if, so, if we wanted to go do that. I'm The Loving Diet. So my website is thelovingdiet.com. Uh, I'm, my email is Jessica at the loving diet and my Instagram is the loving diet. <laughs> Yay. Congruency <laughs> for congruence. Exactly. Yep. Yes. So definitely reach out to Jessica, uh, and follow her. And I love your book too, which is, you know, called the loving diet as well. Um, so again, thank you for being here. I appreciate exactly. you taking the time and here's to us just continuing to talk about this and spread this message. Thank you so much for listening to WISE. If you want to get in touch with me, or if you want to submit a question to be answered on this podcast, please send me a DM and follow me on Instagram at Ashley K. Pardo. I love hearing from you. My DMs are always open. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, please share it with somebody that you love and leave us a five-star rating and review on Facebook.